So we're going to talk about ancient manuscripts today. Next week I'm going to talk about archaeological sites and uh, that mostly all biblical. Week three we'll talk about sciences. Um, week four I'm going to be on vacation, so I'm going to have uh, Tim King cover for me. Um, we'll be talking about the natural world, and then week five we'll talk about geology. That's when we'll probably talk about the flood mostly, um, and then maybe some dinosaur bones. In the week six, we'll talk about uh, anthropology and mythology. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about apologetics. We're going to talk about why this is important. Um, I'm going to try not to read the slides, just verbatim. So, But there's going to be a lot of information up there. So after the class, you can always get me to send you the slides or whatever. I have a whole bunch of references too, so if you need more, one inf more information. But uh, we're going to talk about how we got the Bible and important manuscripts. <clears throat> so, what is apologetics? It comes from the word uh, apologias, which uh, today we, we get the word apologize and we think, I'm sorry or I had a regret. But a thousand years ago, that's not what it meant. Uh, Paul in Acts 22, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And that word is apologias. The Greek word <coughs> defense, apologia. Uh, Peter also said, Always be prepared to give an answer to any, everyone who asks for the hope that's in you. So today, apologias means, or apologia, to give a good defense. <coughs> Why is this class important? It's important because we do have good evidence for the hope that we have. There, there's evidence out there. And we're not going to simply have to blindly believe in something unseen, because there's, there's proof. And we'll be able to give a good defense to others. That's what all these lessons throughout the summer, or throughout this year is about, is being able to learn more so we can evangelize and spread the word. So what can we believe in? Today it's hard because you got all this fake news, you got you know investigations. Every time you turn around, somebody's doing something they're not supposed to, and we have to, you know, who can we believe? Who can we trust? What can we put our faith in? Um, what's the difference between knowing and having faith? Well, we have our senses and we have our brain. So we can see things, physically touch things. And we have a brain, we can reason whether things are true or false. This guy, he's a renowned uh, speaker on the interface of science and philosophy and religion. He's a professor of mathematics at Oxford. And he's saying that faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the opposite, exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence. It is irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of avoiding an intelligent discussion. Is there any proof in God? Any conclusive proof? What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Psalms 19, 1-4, the heavens declare the glory of God. There is 
no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their sound has gone and through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God shows himself through the nature, through nature and through his word. <clears throat> I have another another quote for you uh, from Valer. He's a uh, French Enlightenment writer from the uh, 1700s. He uh, was a historian and philosopher as well. He uh, was famous for his wit and his criticism against Christianity. And he writes, I should always be convinced that a watch proves a watchmaker and that the universe proves God. So even non-believers have reason to, to understand that God is real. There's more going on in the world than kind of meets the eye kind of thing. So we get that a lot of that through science and through nature and I mean there's there are discussions even on the human hand, how it functions and the things that it does. How is that possible that something like that could even come into being? <clears throat> uh, some of the discussion points that uh, I'm going to be talking about through the rest of the class, that's kind of just the overview of everything. I'm going to talk a little bit about historical reliability. Most of that is going to be uh, next week when we talk about the ancient sites and uh, a lot of the archaeological stuff. A little bit about the diversity of authorship. Um, the available manuscripts that we have today. Um, how they copied them, why they are so accurate. Okay. Um, the selection of canon. And uh, the age of the text. The Smithsonian Institute said the Bible is as accurate as any ancient manuscript in history. And we find that a lot of, well, all, I shouldn't say a lot of, but actually all of the people and historical events in the Bible are <coughs> found, not all of them are found, but a lot of them are found outside of Scripture, which helps confirm the reliability of the Bible. And uh, just in the New Testament, in Acts alone, there's 27 leaders and officials that are known in the Bible that are also known outside the Scripture. So there's lots of uh, battles. Uh, until recently, they didn't have any evidence of King David, so they thought that maybe just the stories of David was a myth. It was only found in the Bible. And until recently we found two different, uh, two different inscriptions that say uh, David, the king of the Jews, on different artifacts, which we'll talk about next week. But very interesting that it's constantly evolving. Each year there's constantly more and more biblical evidences that come out of archaeological uh, different sites. So here's, I won't cover all these next week, but here's things that uh, different figures that for a long time may not have been a, uh, they didn't think happened or existed. The, the, Heze, the Hezekiah, he has a, he built the tunnel in Jerusalem and uh, you can still get in that tunnel today. They actually built it from both ends and actually met in the middle, which is kind of amazing for the technology they had at the time. And there's actual inscriptions that were found 
at the center of the tunnel where the, the Jews decided they would write some stuff on the wall, and that's in a museum. Uh, but pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Uh, all these people, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perzazites, the Hivites, they've all been, uh, have found sources outside the Bible to, to support their existence. Yes? There's never been something that dug up by somebody, science, that did not agree with what was said about it in Scripture if it was mentioned there. That doesn't mean everything's mentioned there. But if it's mentioned in Scripture, the first thing scientists do is say, let's go see if this is in the Bible. And then they start studying it from there. Yes. It's still the standard for historical accuracy for anything, especially in the cradle of humanity in the Middle East. Yes. Yeah, a lot of sites, have they've found sites because of stuff that uh, they've read in the scriptures. It's pretty cool. Um, so, just just this fact alone is kind of awesome, but, you know, four, 40, over 40 men wrote the Bible over a 1,500-year period uh, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents, and they all still have a unified message of truth for people that are seeking God. Just that alone is phenomenal. You won't find that in any other book or any other set of books, I guess you'd say. Uh, so here's some ancient ancient manuscripts. So I did want to, a disclaimer, I was going to tell you guys at the beginning, I didn't tell you. So I'm, I'm an engineer, so you're going to see a lot of charts and a lot of graphs <laughs> and a lot of different illustrations. So just let you know that you're going to see a lot of that. That's not a bad word, by the way. <laughs> no, charts is a good word. <laughs> so here we have ancient some ancient uh, books. And uh, you can kind of see when they were written and what the earliest manuscripts we have are. Uh, they're not, they're pretty far off. They've been copied and copied and the older ones have been destroyed because they've worn out or, you know, damaged from weather or whatever just because things tend to decay. Uh, so the, the oldest ones we have, are, and there's not very many copies of them. But when you get to the New Testament, we have pretty close to when things were written, we have copies of, of those letters. And then we have a ridiculous amount of copies of them, over 5,000. It's kind of staggering compared to the other ancient books. So some people may claim that there's all kinds of mistakes in the Bible. Well, we have over 5,000 copies to, to compare. And this is kind of... This is, I didn't actually pull this quote up, this was from another class, but this quote from Time Magazine in the 1970s says, uh, looking at copies of the text, we see many variations, but many variations count every single spelling and grammar mistake. The original matches is still preserved. In fact, after all ancient manuscripts of the Bible are compared, it is obvious that we have well over 98% of the original text that God inspired the writers to record. So that's pretty, pretty phenomenal. The only book in the world that can cite him or near that. If you go back to one of the Greek things from 400 BC, if you have uh, 
what was it, 27 copies, you'll have uh, 27 different books. They're never the same. They're never brought to us like the Bible's brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're correct. Um, so, for a long time I didn't know about canon or canon law. I always thought that it was like a military canon. You know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about canon? I don't understand. But So, if you don't understand, that's fine. Uh, I, it's basically how we decide what scripture is God-breathed, inspired, that we're going to include in the Bible. And that happened around 325 B.C. is when it, it, it kind of became official uh, later on about 397, but the first time that they sat down and said, hey, these are the books that we're going to include in the, in the New Testament anyways, uh, was at, a count, at, a, at the Council of Nicaea. And the ways that they determined what books were going to be canon was, uh, first, was it written by a prophet or apostle, known companion or prophet of leaders of God? And then, was it seen to be divinely inspired and historically accurate? And was the selected work providing value and rule for holy living? Those are the three criteria that they judged all these books. Because, I mean, you've heard uh, Jack talk about the Book of Enoch and some of these other uh, books that were the Israelites had written. Uh, you know, I've heard of the Gospel of Thomas and some other things. Those were written around the same time, but they didn't meet these criteria, so therefore they didn't. They weren't included in our Bible. So the canon number one, Nicaea was done by. Uh, the first uh, Roman ruler who was converted to Christianity, he says, I want to know about all these books I've been reading that converted me to believing in Jesus as the Son of God. I want to know which ones are inspired, which ones are just good books. That's why they called it. What they judged was what the church had been saying for 300 years about these books. The church had accepted these books as inspired and good for holy living in this uh, but uh, there was three, uh, the uh, Roman emperor wanted a copy of these books. There was three of them made for him. One of those books of the New Testament is still in the British Museum. One of the original copies of his New Testament in Greek that they copied for him is still in the British Museum, the whole thing. Yes, that's correct. West West got all of it. Uh, yeah, as I, as you see on there, Constantine that Christianity throughout the uh, early church it would kind of go uh, it would be people would be persecuted and then they'd have times where there was oh yes we need Christianity and then it would go back to where they'd be persecuted again. It kind of depend on who the leader was at the time, what country you were in, all that kind of thing, whether you were going to be welcomed or killed, basically. Uh, at, at this uh, council, they also, uh, that's when they decided on the canon law, and they also uh, did a Nicaea creed. Um, they did creeds because a lot of people couldn't read and write, so they would learn these creeds to know what they believed. Uh, next. So if we compare 
this book, the Bible, to other books, we, uh, we find that the Bible's had no revision for, you know, the Old Testament for 30, the end of the Pentateuch for 3,500 years. None of these other books can, can claim that at all. And then also, the Bible's different because I couldn't think of a, of a hero in the Bible that uh, we didn't see their flaws. So mostly, uh, you know, if I think about the uh, Pharaoh when the Egyptians left, if you look at his writings after that, they didn't uh, say, oh yeah, the Egyptians beat us, or they, they ran away, or I, got, I lost a bunch of slaves. They didn't announce their flaws. They would only say good things. And a lot of times, if not all the times, that's how ancient books were written as well. They would say good things about the people they were writing. But the Bible, we find that's not the case. The Bible talks and shows and highlights the flaws of the people that they're talking about. So it's a contrast between uh, the life we live and the life we should live. So that's unique to the Bible as well. And then the New Testament predates the Quran by 500 years, and Buddhism came into play about 500 BC, which is still a thousand years before the, or after the uh, Old Testament, or the Pentateuch at least. <clears throat> now we're going to get into the stuff that is interesting to me, but this is the stuff that I have to keep my wife awake. Yes, David. Uh, the thing I was thinking about, uh, whenever they uh, got together and first, uh, you know, had the Canaan uh, meetings, basically, uh, to, you know, determine what should go in and what, uh, what, what, uh, what didn't belong. So, from my understanding, that, that, that there's, uh, the Catholics had uh, some additional stuff in their Bible. Was that done at this <coughs> At this time, too, or was that another time when that when some of those other books might have been included? Yeah, the uh, the Old Testament, the the Jewish, uh, the Israelites, they did not uh, like the Septuagint. <coughs> I don't believe included the Apocrypha. Yes, uh, it did. Did it? It did. It did. It did. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember when they it actually took it, it out. identified them as hidden books, apocryphal. Right, secret, secret teachings or whatever. Right. But I don't know that they did at Nicaea, though. I don't know that they did. I think, they've taken, I think they were taken out by then. Oh, I was curious about, the, about that side of it because I, I yes. hear about that now and then. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, I don't hear anything, but the uh, Catholic Bible includes the apocrypha. Yes, still. Still yeah. does. Yes. Yeah. So, how did they write this stuff down? Well, I, I read a book here years ago. I mean, it's, it was a while ago. Probably when I started learning all this. They, they would argue whether writing was even... We could actually write, read and write the time of Moses. Was writing even around at that time? You know, the, there's, there's been arguments throughout history about, well, could this happen? And we've learned that writing was well before Moses. 
So Moses had the ability to read and write. Um, so the Old Testament, they write on stone. Obviously, that's a pretty hard chore to carve stuff in the stone. Uh, you have clay. That's a little bit easier because you can do it while it's soft, and then it hardens, and then it's permanent. And then leather, of course, uh, that's parchment. And then later on in the New Testament, they would have the papyrus, which is a, is a tree that they would uh, kind of make strips out of it, lay it up flat, let it dry, and then they, they would write on that. It, it was more like, a, more like a paper we think of today, but kind of a little rugged. So these dates are the dates I have. They're not 100% accurate because you can look in three different places and get three different dates for when all these books were written. But this is kind of an estimate of when they think most of these books were written. So the Pentateuch was written around 1440s, 1400s BC sometime. And all the Old Testaments down to, they were finished writing by the 400s BC. So this is when they were written. So think about that. They were written, they would make copies, and then, you know, that copy would wear out, and then they'd make another copy, and then that copy would wear out, and they keep doing that. And uh, what we have today, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and the Hebrew language, the oldest manuscript that we have that's in the Hebrew language is 1000 A.D. So... That's really not that old compared to how old the Old Testament is. But the uh, Maser, I can't say their name very well, Maseratic, yeah, those guys were very meticulous on how they would transcribe the, the scriptures. Uh, they would count numbers and well, they didn't have chapters, but they would count all the letters and all that in the books, and then if they made a mistake, they would burn them and start all over again. Very, very precise. And then after they made a copy, they would take the old copy and they would destroy it to make sure that nobody would do anything bad to it or whatever. So that's part of the reason why we don't have older copies is because once they copied them, they would get rid of the older ones. So, and, uh, yes? A scribe? that uh, would have visited with Jesus in the first century, started out at age four to learn how to write down just so he could write the scriptures down. That was his job. The scribe was someone that copied that document and uh, they were not qualified to do that until they were 40 years old. They spent 30, 40 years learning to copy accurately. And like you say, if they found a single error on a scroll, they discarded the scroll and started over. Uh, the Holy Spirit caused the scribes to save the scriptures for us. The Holy Spirit was involved in that. Which I was talking to Levi last night, and I just, I don't know, I guess I never thought about this before, but it's interesting that, you know, Jesus read from the Septuagint in the synagogues and everything else. And that was actually a translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. And that happened anywhere from 250 B.C. to 100 B.C. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and the reason why it's called Septuagint, because that stands for 70, and that's how many 
scribes were tasked to, to do that. Yes, sir? The, uh, the Jews were commanded by one of the Greek uh, uh, kings to, to translate from Hebrew into Greek, and they, they picked 70 uh, Hebrew uh, scholars to translate it into the Greek, and that's how we got the set. <coughs> Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in about 250 BC was what it was written around. So it was in, in, in circulation for over 250 years before the Jews occurred. Yes, sir. And then the Hebrew was also translated into uh, different languages as well. Uh, Latin in, in 382 AD, that was by Jerome, um, and then into the Syriac. Uh, a little bit earlier, 100 AD's. Hey, quick question. Yes, sir. So the Latin was translated from the Hebrew. Yes. Okay. And the Greek was translated from the Hebrew. What yes. About the last one. That last one, the that last one I believe it was. Septuagint during uh, Alexander the Great's time. Uh, the world, be the Roman, the Greek world became a Greek-speaking world, and then the Romans conquered Greece. But the language of the first century was typically still Greek. Right. Now, Latin was the official language of the Roman military, and the Bible was translated into Latin a hundred years or so later. But Greek was still the world's language in the Roman Empire whenever Jesus was around. And that, that translation in, at the uh, library in Alexandria, Greece, had been done by Jewish scholars uh, during the time of Alexander. David, I believe it was translated from Hebrew. Also, uh, if you see, I have uh, websites on the bottom of these. A lot of these manuscripts, you go online and you can actually, they, somebody has taken pictures of these and you can scroll through them. I mean, if you're able to read Hebrew or <laughs> Greek, I mean, you can, you can read these, you know. So it, it's pretty cool that you can actually... That's what I'm doing this View these. That's what you got something to do this afternoon now, right? <laughs> but the websites are on there, and there's there's uh, some official ones, and then there's there's so much information on the internet nowadays about all these manuscripts and different things that that you find. Okay, so here uh, this is you know as time goes on, they start putting them in scrolls. And then they start putting them on this papyrus and tying them together, which would be more of what we think of as a book, but they call them codexes. Uh, so if you hear of, the, of a codex, it's, it's these papyrus paper sheets that are sewn together in a book form. And then uh, later on, we get, you know, animal skins, the parchment that, you know, they would, either way, they'd be kind of thick. You know, they wouldn't be like the thin paper we have today. I never heard a sheep or goat animal skin called parchment, just like they did over in, uh-huh, vellum or parchment. Well, I'm sorry, I'm just, no, you're I'm, fine. just I'm just mumbling out. I didn't know there was a distinction. Yeah, I've always called it parchment, but I didn't know that there yeah, was a distinction. So uh, here's the, the New Testament. We think these dates are probably a little more accurate, but written from 
44 AD, clear down to 96 AD. Um, so then uh, these are a little bit different. They're, we have the, the letters, um, a lot of them early on. That slide's really hard to see. I can't even see it, and I'm way up here. It's very blurry. But also, there's a website at the bottom, too. You can flip through all these and read these if you can read Greek. So. Yes, ma'am. You are correct. It is in Africa. <laughs> okay, so um, let's see if I can go through some of this a little bit. This is kind of a timeline. So, of course, we've talked about this. The Old Testament was written, you know, 1400s. Um, we uh, it was written in Hebrew. <coughs> then we have uh, the uh, Ezra. The priest, he, he puts the scriptures together in different in the order, um, and, and and kind of compiles them all. Then the Septuagint's written, about 250 BC, and right here the, in the bottom right corner is the little bush, the papyrus, that the tree that they actually used to. I don't know if it's a tree or a bush because it looks like a bush to me. Bush, but, yeah. So that they used to uh, write on. And then uh, Jesus' time, he's walking around with his disciples, <coughs> imparting knowledge. They write down everything. We get the, the scriptures. Sorry, I can't read my writing. It's too small. <clears throat> so that's when... That's when the New Covenant comes along, the New Testament. Then uh, in the 200s, we start getting other translations. We get the Latin, we get the Copic, which is Egyptian, and the uh, Syriac, which is the uh, Syrian versions. And then uh, here early on, they have 22 books that they accepted. And then as, as time goes on, they, they find more. And right around, uh, Constantine legalizes Christianity in 313. And that's kind of, by the 400s is when the 27 books of the New Testament become standard as, as canon. And then on the left, or the right, I guess, on the right, you see Jerome, that he started translating the Hebrew uh, Old Testament into Latin in uh, 382. He translates the whole Bible. Uh, and that's what uh, we get the, the Vulgate from that, that's in the, the Vatican in the 500s uh, the Roman Empire is on decline and that's when we get the uh, Masoretics uh, Hebrew scholars that are translating the Old Testament not translating transcribing the Old Testament and then uh we, we start getting the Bible taken to England 
and uh, in the 600s. And I don't know if you guys have ever watched the, I can't remember what the one show called, The Last Kingdom or something like that, or is that what it's called, the, the English show? But anyways, they talk about Alfred the Great and Alfred and Aldred, and they actually had translated some of the Bible uh, during their reign. And then we get to uh, the 1300s. We get John Wycliffe. 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 Sorry, I'm horrible with names. But uh, he uh, translated the Bible as well. And he, uh, I think it's kind of funny down at the bottom. It talks about his Bible was around. The Bible was, was burned and banned. And then 40 years after his death, his bones were exhumed and burned for heresy. So they were so upset with him that they actually <laughs> dug his bones up and burned them. So that's, that's pretty upset, right? <laughs> so in 1408, the English, the Bible becomes illegal to translate the Bible or read it in common English. And then 1455, the printing press is invented, or I guess it would be invented right Germany uh, in Germany and they print the uh, Gutenberg Bible which is the Latin Vulgate on the printing press did you really that'd be awesome that'd be very cool so that was kind of uh, well that was right before the, the Reformation movement right so Reformation 1517 you know, they nail in the, the, the thesis on the door. So that was not very long after the printing press that, that that started taking place. So information just started booming after the printing press. So we started getting Bibles. So in the 1500s, we get uh, Erasmus. He uh, gets a more, a more accurate Latin translation of the New Testament. And then uh, Martin Luther translates the Bible into German so that more common people, him and Tyndale, they, they all want the Bible to be read by everybody, not just the bishops or the Catholic Church or whoever. They want everybody to be able to read the Bible for themselves. Uh, Tyndale, he's kind of the father of the English Bible. Um, Hey, Jerry. Yes, sir. How do they define more accurate Latin? I mean, did somebody better than the one guy that already did, or more, they had a group or a council? Because or? Erasmus produced a Greek uh, uh, version of the Bible that was more accurate than what had been available to the scholars at the time. So that, when you see the word textus receptus is, a, is a something that's just been relied on by a Luther, Tyndale, and others translators as you go along. And the further you go along to the 1600s, King James Version was translated with, with some Greek text that weren't quite as accurate, but then you have other Greek translations come along that helped improve that. And so it's, it's, a, it's a process, so, in English anyway. Slide 41, I have a really good illustration for you that I hope We'll see if we can get there. The bell hasn't rung yet, so. Uh, and the, 
the great, oh, I haven't got to that slide yet, so oops, my bad. Uh, here, the, the thing that's interesting to me is the great Bible. They called it the chained Bible because they would actually chain it to the pillars of the church so people wouldn't steal it. So that's kind of cool. But, and then uh, we have Queen Mary. She bans Protestants. So people were fleeing Switzerland and everything. And then we get the Geneva Bible in Switzerland. And that's the Bible that the pilgrims would have brought over with them uh, to America when they came. And we have uh, the King James Version of the Bible. He commissioned... Uh, 54 scholars to undertake uh, the translation of the Bible from the Greek into Hebrew, um, the manuscripts that they had at the time, and that was in 1611. And then in the 1800s, we get some of these older manuscripts that become available to us from the, that in the Greek, the Alexandrias, the, is that the one I'm on? Yep. And I don't know how to say these other ones. The, that other one since that's the Syrian one uh, but they're discovered these older manuscripts so they can rely on them to see how well they've translated and copied the text down through the time and the, the Vatican the Ven Vaticanus is the one that was in the Latin you might make a point here just because those are important manuscripts but the they point are. is that those manuscripts were not available to the translators of the 1611 no, uh, they were version. Not. So that's where it gets more accurate because yes. this goes as far back as you can get almost with the, the text. Right, absolutely. So when we're yes, talking sir. about the Bible, the original, we still have parts of that in the original languages. Now we're talking about the Bible that we would read in English. Uh, there's 8 billion copies of the Bible available right now in 2,000 languages. We are primarily interested in English, so we've started talking about, from the time of Tyndall, about the different English translations. They are not inspired. Right. They are translations. Yes. Uh, as Ron mentioned, you look for a good translation, you look for multiple scholars with multiple backgrounds to translate from the original, which is always accurate and always what it was. Right. Uh, revisions are more modern texts of all of these translations, not of the original. They're revisions of the translations, right. not the original. David, did you have something you wanted to say? I notice uh, the Sinaiticus is uh, in the British Museum, and an earlier one that you mentioned. Uh, the one with the word Vatican. Yeah, the Vatican is. Uh, it's in the, the Vatican. Right. And was not available when we went through the Vatican. Down in a vault somewhere. Right, yeah, line. they hide it. Better <laughs> okay. keep it safe, right? In fact, in 1611, we really didn't even, nobody spoke English. It was late Middle English, which is not the same as modern right. English. Revisions are, as the language changes and the words change and the structures change, then we go back again to the original languages. Speaking of the original languages, this is really kind of cool because the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find those, <coughs> and those were written somewhere around 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., and we find that there's... Uh, 
we find almost a complete scroll of Isaiah. And we find that there's like hardly any, the Bible, let's see, it says, the cave proves to be remarkably close to the standard Hebrew Bible, very slightly in spelling, and, and that's just in the names. So the rest of it is extremely accurate compared to the rest of the Hebrew Bible that those Masoretics had been copying over and over again. And so you're saying a thousand years they've made like no mistakes other than the spelling of names. So that's pretty phenomenal to find that. That was the Hebrew Bible yes. they had been using all along, not the modern Greek translation that had been used otherwise. But when you go back to the two of them, even though they've been separated by a thousand years, they still read the same. Ninety-eight percent plus of the same. So this is the illustration I was kind of wanted you to see. You can uh, so they kind of they're starting off here with these ancient books, and they're writing the Bible. And up until the 1800s, do they get a, uh, the availability to look at these older copies? And they go along and they keep getting older copies available to them so they're able to update them based off of the older copies. And then we come along to the 1900s, 1990s or so. We get the Dead Sea Scrolls and we find that all of it's pretty accurate. It's very accurate except for spelling in the words. Pretty much. You're saying the update was... Every book from the Old Testament there except Esther. The book of Esther, there's no, no pieces of Esther in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but all the rest of it is good. So they found these older ones archaeologically and were able to go back. Well, some of them, uh, so the ones down here, the ones we were talking about, the uh, the Vatican, the, the, you know, the Vatican ones that wanted to give it up to share it, the, the one in the... Syria or whatever, it was in a monastery, nobody knew it was there until just somebody happened upon it, different things like that. So they might just be missing and people don't realize what they have, or they might be like the Vatican and just not wanting to share it. Jeremy, did you, did you ancient, read ancient, ancient ones? The British Museum has ancient, ancient, ancient ones in the Syriatic libraries, and the Egyptian libraries still have very ancient documents as well. Ron, what did you want to say? I'm just going to say that those three great manuscripts are all in Greek, as I recall, yes, and they're all based on the Greek Septuagint. That's the basis. So that's part of the accuracy that translates from up. And then so the King James Version is, is, a, is a great translation in the Bible, but they're, they're more accurate the later you get to the 1800s, quite frankly. So this is the, the that trick. That translation, <laughs> the Vaticanus, the Codex Vaticanus, that's what it looks like. It's written in Greek. Uh, here's the other one. It's written in Greek, kind of what it would look like to read. Uh, the, and this one, the Alexandrius, and what it would look like as well. So these are all Greek translations. Greek translations. And this is the one that the uh, the Hebrew Old Testament that was written by the Masoretics, uh, the Lenin, Leningrad Codex, and that was in about 1000 A.D. That's the oldest one that we have in Hebrew. <coughs> and I'll, 
looks like it would be really hard to read. So do we know what, like, modern-day translations, which one is the closest to the most accurate? It's going to depend on the type of translation there's some that are designed to be very specific, almost word for word from the Greek, yeah. and then there are some that are more uh, like the NIV. I can't think of the word, but it's, idea it's more of uh, it's it's more of a, the, a thought process idea. Um, so it just kind of depends. It's also important for people to realize too, because we we keep using the word accurate. I, I think it's we, we have to be careful when we because we get the idea that well, if you had a Bible from 1400, it really wasn't correct. Yeah. That's not true. Um, right. what, they, what happened was, when they got later on, they went back, and because of the, like you had said, because of all the languages they had translated through, it, it became, people started getting very antsy as to whether the language translations were right. When they found those original texts, and they were able to go back to the original Greek so early, they were able to prove that a lot, again, we were still in that 98% realm, where vast majority of everything they were doing, except for a few spelling things, names, things like that, was still correct, even in all the other languages. And they were able to clean it up a little bit based on the idea of, of those spelling mistakes, the, the things that had been lost in language translations as right. they went through. So, like I said, it's important to not think that right. Plus you have language. Bible from a certain time right. that's kind of wrong. And that's plus language changes. Like the concept or philosophy that's not. I mean, yeah. All modern translations are built around the structure of the King James in 1611, which was late Middle English, not even modern English. All translations basically are built around that today, and there are probably 50 translations. That's what the front of the chain They are all built around the structure of that, but that has Greek grammar and Greek structure being better known than today as translated. There are no Bible doctrines that are not in modern translations. Bible doctrines are always in English translations. They're always there. Well, thank you guys, and uh, next week we'll talk about... Uh,